Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Good to see you here this Sunday with us. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope. Um, And if you would just bow your heads with me once more uh, before we dive into the passage John just read for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, until you come to take us home, um, something special happens when your people gather. And so uh, what uh, a wonderful thing to think about that uh, across the world, for uh, the past half day and going on to the next half day, uh, the manifold wisdom of God is being proclaimed in big churches, small churches, American churches, African churches across the globe, and that we are one part of that wonderful display of your love for the lost, which is outside of culture, outside of language, outside of social and economic status, and is for us through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, it is a privilege to do what we're about to do, to listen to your word. And so we pray that you are honored um, in the words of my mouth, in the response of our hearts in here today, as we continue um, to make much of your salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we are in our final three messages in the book of Deuteronomy. And as we've talked about, this book is mostly one giant sermon. A sermon that began in chapter 1, verse 6, and a sermon that's actually going to conclude today in Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. And in this book, what we see, if you don't have your Bibles open already, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 31. If you don't have a Bible, you could grab one in the back before you leave. Please take it home with you. Um, But what we see is we see Moses. Moses as this prophet, as this pastor, pouring out his heart to his spiritual children. He's proclaiming to them the wonderful works of God and the immense grace he has for them. And this sermon is uh, kind of an odd sermon. It includes in the middle a bunch of laws, a bunch of legal literature. But at its heart, it's expressing Moses' love both for God and his holiness and for his people, that his people would respond and do what's at the center of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And my guess is that as the people are listening to this really long sermon by Moses, that the people are actually listening with bated breath. John Stott was a longtime pastor, theologian, and writer who pastored in most of the 20th century, or for part of the 20th century. And uh, I heard one guy who was able to attend Stott's final sermon before he retired from public ministry. And he described this kind of reverence that happened as there was a man who spent his life being poured out for the love of Jesus and for the love of his church, delivering his final public address. And it's those emotions and that circumstance which is really similar to what God's people are going through in Deuteronomy. This is not just another sermon by Moses. This is Moses' last sermon. And he's told them that. A number of times in the book of Deuteronomy, he's told them that he's going to die before they go into the promised land. And here they are at the banks of the Jordan River with the promised land ahead of them. And Moses opens this passage by saying, I'm 120 years old. I'm too old to go in and go out, and I won't cross this Jordan River with you. 
And so this sermon is a sermon during a time of transition. Have you ever experienced a transition of similar weight? And sometimes we have good transitions in our lives. And, and it's kind of like this blessed anxiety that we have. And maybe that's you starting out as a newly married couple or heading off to college or starting a new job. We're excited about the opportunity and yet there's some fears and uncertainties that lay ahead of us. Or for others of us, and maybe even the same people, we know the weight of difficult transitions of life under a new medical diagnosis or after the loss of your job, or the loss of a loved one. And while each and every one of us have transitions that are unique to ourselves, the feelings of anxiety and pressure and worry are pretty universal. We all experience them. And to a people who are, who are facing a time of transition as this, Moses' conclusion is to remind these people, his spiritual children, the ones whom he loves, of one single truth. The truth that Moses wants to express to his people is this, that God will be with you. At the end of Moses' message, he wants them to know that God will be with you. I wonder what your response is to a sentiment like that. When you hear that idea, what does it mean to you? What do you do with it? What practical hope do you take from it? When I say God will be with you, do you hear it as something as foreign and as mystical if I stood up here and I said today, may the force be with you? It's great. Don't know what that means, but that's super. Or are you one who looks around at the circumstances of your life and you say, with a friend as near to me as this who needs enemies because this is anything but good. But in this crowd of Hebrews, there are people who are nervous for the transition, people who are excited for the transition, people who are in need of a transition. And to whoever you are, whatever your emotion is at this stage in life, Moses wants them to know and wants you to know the wonderful truth that God will be with you. And Deuteronomy is transitioning from Moses to Joshua from looking back to looking forward, and from the wilderness to the promised land, we actually see three wonderful implications of the idea that God is with his people. And that's what we're going to spend time looking at today. And these are the three uh, implications we're going to spend time in today. The first is that God with us means that when everything changes, nothing changes. When everything changes, nothing changes. The second is that God with us means that he can be with you too. And then lastly... God with us means that even when we're not with him, Jesus brings us back. So those are the three things we're going to look at today, but all of this starts uh, with the final words of Moses to his people in Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 through 8. And this is what it says. So Moses continued to speak all these words to Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over with you or go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them, that's to these other nations, as he did to Sihon and Og. We'll come back and talk about those in a little bit. The kings of the Amorites and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. 
Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So here we see Moses speaking to the people of Israel and Moses speaking to Joshua in the sight of all Israel. But to really understand the emotions that are at the heart of this transition, we need to understand the relationship that Moses has had with this people, Israel. Remember, it was only 40 years ago where the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, crying out to God, wondering where their God was, where at the exact same time God was preparing a runaway Hebrew named Moses to call God's people out of the clutches of the most powerful empire at the time. It was Moses who was momentarily rejected by his own people when Pharaoh heavied their burdens when Moses first went to Pharaoh. And it was Moses who had signs and wonders through his staff and through his hand. And it was Moses who eventually led God's people safely through the night of the Passover. But it was also Moses to whom the people cried out when they got to the Red Sea and they turned around and Pharaoh's army was sweeping behind them, ready to destroy them again. But it was Moses, the leader God gave them, who parted the sea and led them to safety. It was Moses who met their whining in the desert for water, for bread, and for meat. It was Moses who, when God descended on Mount Horeb, burning with fire, it was Moses who went up to talk with God when the rest of the people were too fearful and said stood far off while Moses ascended into the darkness. It was Moses who pleaded with God for mercy when the people of God made idols days after God delivered them. It was Moses who encouraged the people to enter the promised land at door number one at Kadesh Barnea, promising all of the goodness of God if only they would enter into the land. And it was Moses who led God's people after they refused to enter the land in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And now it's Moses who, despite everything these people have experienced in the last 40 years, it is Moses who has gotten them right back to where they should be at door number two to the promised land on the plains of Moab, looking over into the land that they've always desired. And with a future of difficulties and uncertainty before them, their leader, the guy who was always there for them, the guy who did the wonders, the guy who bore with their burdens, the guy who interceded before them is going to die. And more than that, this great hero leader is going to die because he disobeyed God. In the wilderness, in the wandering, God told Moses to do something and Moses disobeyed. And because of that one moment of sin, despite a people whose entire history is a history of sin, God said to Moses, you will not enter the promised land. And so you can imagine the fear and uncertainty the average Israelite would have with the prospect that's before them. Not only are they losing their national hero in this defining moment, but they look at Moses and they say, if Moses' sin keeps him out of the promised land, what hope do I have? I'm not Moses. 
I didn't do miracles. I haven't spoken with God face to face. In a very literal way, everything is changing. There are new lands, new leaders, new opportunities, new enemies, and new fears. Have you ever been in a season in your life where it seems like everything you once knew has now been taken away? And in a moment of great decision, there seems to be nothing of certainty in your life. And here Moses is saying in a season just like that, nothing has changed. This is business as usual. Why? Because Moses was only their leader and never their God. That's the point that Moses is making in this conclusion. Listen to how he speaks in verses 3 through 6. The Lord your God will himself go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you will dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to these nations as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and shall do to them according to the whole com- and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be in fear of them for it is the Lord who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so Moses causes them to look down and to look back. Look at the land you're standing on. Here they are on the plains of Moab. And this was once a land occupied by two powerful kings. And yet God displaced them. And he says that same God is not going to stop being your God when you get to the land he promised you. God didn't even promise you this land. And he gave it to you. Why would you doubt? This God. He says, your circumstances might be changing. But the promise of this God to save his people is unchanging. And in one sense, this commissioning address is really similar to another farewell address we see in Scripture. Another one where a leader is seemingly going away. And a group of people who aren't quite sure what life looks like after their leader are being commissioned to do something. After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he stood with a handful of his disciples and he told them that everything was about to change. Something monumental had happened. And yet he gave them a promise. This is, of course, the great commission that Jesus gives. In the end of Matthew, where Jesus says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here you see this parallel between the two where Moses is saying, I'm going to die, but I'm not your savior. So everything's going to be okay. You don't need me. And Jesus is saying, I am your savior. And I have beaten death. Therefore, nothing can take me away from you. Even as you go into the quest of discipleship and to the life of the church, I will be with you always, even though I will not be there. Even though it seems that everything will be changing and I'm about to ascend up into heaven, I will be with you always. And we all know the rate at which life changes, right? Life is always changing. Our circumstances are always changing, if only by the fact that people die. 
Life goes on. If we put our hope in the people who are around us or the circumstances which are outside of us as the primary deliverer, we are always going to be crushed. And I call this the insanity of pace. The insanity of pace. How many times do we put our hope, our comfort, our future satisfaction in a home, in a location, in a relationship, in a job, in a career, only to have option one, it fail us. Or option two, have us get there and realize it didn't really satisfy us. And then what do we do? Do we say, aha, these were never meant to satisfy. I need to look for something outside of this world. (laughs) No, we double down like insane nut jobs and we do the same thing. (laughs) We say, I need a bigger house. I need a higher paying job. I need a better relationship. I need a nicer car. And we do the exact same thing, hoping for a different response. When all is said and done, it is insanity. Thinking that if we just had something else, it will satisfy. But this world and all of its treasures are perishing. And if you spend your life pursuing those things, it will be crushing because you cannot keep up with the pace of this world. It won't work. You see, there are good things in this world. Sometimes there are even great things in this world, but none of those things are God. When we see God's promise of salvation, though, as our greatest comfort, the comfort that one day God will make everything new. And in the immediate, when we're in this time where God has promised that everything will be new, but we are not yet there, God has made us new. God has changed our hearts. God has brought us into a relationship with him as a promise that he is capable of making all things new because you are a testimony to it. That's where we begin to live apart from the insanity of pace and instead we begin to live in the insanity of grace because it's just as insane, isn't it? You think if someone popped up in the midst of these people at the desert and they see seven nations greater and mightier than them, that's the word Moses uses. Go and have fun fighting these people who are stronger, more well-armed, and more numerous. By the way, I'm going to die because I couldn't match up. If someone just said, hey, guys, we got this, they'd be insane. In fact, that's what Joshua has done earlier and Caleb and the spies. And they said, you're insane. Do you see what's going on? And in the same way, our world looks at some of the challenges and circumstances and transitions that we experience in life. The death of a loved one or a crisis in health. And if we say, this hurts a lot, but it's going to be okay, the world will call us insane. You see, my grandpa, I remember, had this uh, one recliner. It was a grayish-blue recliner. Uh, And whatever was going on in his life, when he came home and he sat in that recliner, everything else just like melted away before him. And it wasn't until like Monday morning that the recliner went up and he went on with his life. And I'm sure you guys have something in your life where like as long as you have this, things are okay. What Moses is saying is grace is that easy chair of comfort. But not in an ignorance is bliss kind of way, but in a way that really holds up to all reality. Where you say, as long as you have this promise of this God to see you through even the hardest times, everything will be okay. This Jesus, he saves you. 
and he has no intention now of leaving you. This doesn't mean trials won't come. It doesn't mean wounds won't hurt, but it means you can move confidence when everything outside seems to be changing because you know that God has prepared a place for you. You know that your hope is not in what is seen in this world, but what is unseen in the substance of faith in Jesus Christ. Consider Paul's hope in 2 Corinthians verse 4, beginning in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death of Jesus. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. We live in this paradox where everything could be changed, and yet nothing can be changed because we hold the promise of Jesus. Promise of Jesus, which is true in the sun and true in the shade. You see, it's only the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ where you can find peace by putting aside the insanity of pace and instead putting on the insanity of grace, knowing that Jesus is always enough, even when it seems like he's not. Even when it seems like you should let go and pursue other things, it is always and only Jesus and resting in his ability to go before us that brings us peace. I pray you learn to do that in whatever it is you're going through right now. Because it's in this wonderful word of encouragement, of trusting a God who has gone, will go, and will always be ahead of his people, that Moses now concludes his sermon. This is the end. And now we kind of get into this unique narrative in Deuteronomy where Moses is preparing his people to be encouraged in this hope afterward. And so we read kind of this prescription in Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, that's the priest and the elders, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place where he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble people, the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. So here, Moses writes down his entire sermon that he just preached. He writes down, he writes the book of Deuteronomy. And he says to the people, every seven years at the Feast of the Booths, you are to gather everybody, the whole of Israel, and you are to read this out loud to everyone. Why? Because people who have received God's grace are constantly given over to preaching grace to others. That's what God's people do. And this is the second point, is that God with us means that he can be with you too. God with us means that he can be with you too. I don't hold exclusive rights to God. God has given himself in grace to those who would respond to grace. At the heart of what was to be heard by these men, by these women, by these little ones, by these sojourners here, everybody who's around was the message of grace. Because as we've gotten through Deuteronomy, I hope your perspective has changed a little bit on it. 
where we see at its heart, Deuteronomy is really a message about God's radical grace towards broken people. Moses' sermon started by recounting God's faithfulness in the face of Israel's faithlessness. And then it gets into this middle section, the largest portion of the sermon, where God says, this is how you respond to my grace. This is what it looks like to live in my promise. This is how you act. This is how your civil life, your social life, your sex life, and your family life is to be radically different because I have saved you. And then as we've looked at the last few weeks in Moses' concluding address, he reminds them that God is going to change their hearts once again and restore them to salvation even after they have seemingly lost it. This teaching, this law, this Torah that these people are to read is the story of God's grace and his desire to save broken people through faith. It began with a story of the Exodus recounting God's physical deliverance of his people and it ends with a prophecy of God one day circumcising our hearts in the spiritual deliverance of God's people from sin. That we see in Colossians 2 comes only when Jesus changes our hearts through faith to respond. And every seventh year, at the time of release, remember we looked at this earlier in Deuteronomy, every seventh year, At the Festival of the Booze, it was this year of release where uh, debt payments and loans were suspended for a year. It was lifted, and it was in the lifting of those burdens where God reminds his people of the lifting of the greatest burden, of this message of salvation through obeying God and fearing him, that you would respond by loving this God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Remember, at the beginning, Moses even says, when other nations read this law, They will say, what God is as near to their people as this God? What God is as loving to their people as this God is? This message, the message of even Deuteronomy, is a message of astounding beauty of God's love for broken people. And the pattern of this community was to celebrate God's grace to deliver them. And as a response, they were to say to everyone who's listening, this God has been so near to us in his covenant. And he could be near to you too. You can get in on this. This is for you to come and to hear and to respond. There's nothing more comforting from moving from the insanity of pace to the insanity of grace. And to those who are in here, to those who are burdened by feeling like they can't measure up or they have to do enough to measure up, that offer stands for you to come and rest in what God has done. You see, Deuteronomy, we've said this a number of times, is really a book about change. And the truth is, you need to change. Your closest friends know you need to change. The Disney Channel ultimately knows you need to change. And God knows you need to change. But you can't do it. And nothing the world is peddling can do it. It's only the grace of the God who made you who can change your heart in the way we want to be changed. And he can change you too. The members of this church, the believers in this church, we stand saying God has changed us. And I want you to do a case study. Really awkward, but do it afterwards. Go, if you're not a believer, go talk to people around here. If you are a believer who's wrestling your faith, just ask people about their lives as you're leaving here. I know it's weird that we would talk to people at church, but let's try it. And uh, let's talk. And what you'll see is this church is a wonderful case study of grace because all of us are just bumbling fools. You will not meet anyone in here who you're like, those people, they deserve grace. None of us deserve grace. None of us had our lives together. 
None of us were spectacular. But God gave grace on the cross through Jesus. And by faith, we responded. By faith, we said, that's the change I need. That's the punishment I deserved, and this is the salvation of God. This is the evangel. This is the good news, which is at the heart of God's covenant community. It's the heart of this church. This is what everything we do rotates around, this good news of what Jesus has done on the cross to save sinners and restore us to God. And what's interesting is that this isn't just for those who are non-believers. There are deep practical points here for believers in here. Look at verses 12 through 13. Assemble the people. The men, the women, the little ones, and the sojourners in your town, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So what's the practical point for us in here? The practical point is that evangelism starts in the church. Moses' prescription for sharing the good news of this gospel of grace includes it going to primarily those who were already part of the religious community. Everything he just said, the men, the women, the little one, the sojourners, is all defining what we see in verse 11 before all of Israel. And that's because there are people who come into this community. There are people who have Christian friends. There are people who have grown up in the church who have never actually responded to the gospel. You see, there's this three-part progression to hear the word of the Lord, to fear God, and to obey his commandment. Especially in the Western world, we stop at hearing. To have heard is to done everything. But the gospel actually calls us deeper. The gospel calls us into the wonder of God doing work in our hearts so that we might be transformed in everything. And this idea of hearing and responding is especially true when we think of our children who, Lord willing, come to church with us, who sit with us, who are in our homes, who are in kids' ministry. That we might prioritize this message to their kids in a way where we don't just think because they grew up in a Christian home, they are automatically saved. God has promised and privileged the Christian home as a factory of disciple-making, but it's not just hearing it. It's not just trusting that the church can save your kids. It's trusting that your kids will be saved in the same way you were saved, by hearing and responding to this grace. What does it look like for you, if you have kids in your home, to have these patterns of preaching the gospel to them? What does it look like if you don't have kids to participate by helping parents preach the gospel to their kids? And let me just tell you, as a guy who has four kids, and now no one tells you that when you hit four, your life just goes away, and you're just completely overwhelmed with everything. Um, But that's where we are. And so these moments, they're not magnificent. They're not well thought out and well rehearsed. And a lot of times, it's just to like get through with all of our kids not dying. But I am not the one who saves my kids. Neither is a well-behaved family devotion time. It's trusting the gospel with my kids and trusting God to save them that does anything. And so we, in broken ways, can together preach the gospel to our kids in a way where they not only hear it, but they hear that it demands a response, that they would obey, that they would believe, and that they would worship. If you're someone who doesn't know what that looks like in your home, I encourage you to to go up to someone in your community group and just ask them what it looks like in their home. 
Because there's all sorts of different ways it works. And depending upon the age of your kids, it looks different at any point in time. But there is hope for preaching the gospel to our kids and expecting God to do wonderful things in their life. One scholar um, tracked kind of the decline of religious communities uh, in the Northeast America. And he noticed kind of this three-generation falling away. And he said it happened like this. One generation believed the gospel. They talked about it. They spoke about it. They treasured it. And then the next generation assumed the gospel. They had heard it, and they no longer talked about it, and they assumed everyone else had it, which led to the third generation where because of the silence, the third generation abandoned the gospel. We as a church must never make the mistake of assuming the gospel, of assuming that everyone who hears it knows it, that everyone who comes has responded to it, that everyone who has responded to it has exhausted it, that everyone who loves it is done loving it. We want to make much of this gospel in every area of our life because it is a gospel for all of life that changes all of us. We must learn to preach the message of this gospel and its implications in our community groups and at our dinner tables. And so what does this look like? One of the easiest ways to share the gospel with people who are already in our church is to just be in a relationship where you could share with them what God's doing in your own life. That's the most practical and wonderful way to actually display that this gospel has an effect on you. That Jesus dying for your sins really changed things. And it causes them to consider what it looks like in their life. Another way is to simply ask people when they're talking about a challenge in life, when they're talking about an opportunity, to ask somebody the question of, how does the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins, how does it actually change the way you're thinking about this? And we're not going to have glamorous answers. You might even, not even ask glamorous questions or know what's to come of it, but the point is we want people to actually pull the gospel into their life. To not assume that we already know exactly what it means and know exactly its implications in life, but that we actually become a community that shows there is more grace to be received in this gospel than we ever imagined. There is a nearness to God far deeper than anything else. And the truth is evangelism will not thrive in our city or in our workplaces if it is not thriving inside of our church. We need the gospel. I need you to remind me of the gospel. So as a church, let's create a community that's always inviting people into this wonderful relationship with grace because if it worked for you, it can work for them too. You are not special, but God has specially loved you in the gospel. And so it's our privilege to invite others into that relationship as well. And so here Moses sets up this evangelistic pattern. And now what Moses is going to do is he's going to call, or God is going to call Moses and Joshua to himself for this sort of divine commissioning. And what we're going to see in this portion is kind of a drastic shift from what we've seen. Because we saw that God promised to be with his people. Moses recited God's promise when he was speaking earlier. And now we see that Moses is preparing God's people to practice the preaching of this good news, the preaching of this law, and write response to it. But what God is going to tell Moses and Aaron is that these people are going to make an absolute mess of things because of their sin. Where Moses, in the first part of chapter 31, stresses God's nearness to his people, God is going to predict a time where his people are going to relationally distance themselves from him. That they are going to run from the very God who seeks to save them. This is verses 14 through 23. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days, are, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua. It's, it's, it's a funny difference. Moses is like, I'm not going to cross the river, guys. And God's like, I know it's because you must die. That's that tension that Moses is preaching here. God is in control of everything at this moment in time. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song. And so we're going to look at this song and talk more about it next week and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, read, everything is great, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous. For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land I swore to give them, and I will be with you. So there's big contrasts between Moses' commission and God's commission, right? Did you guys hear that? Moses says, the Lord himself will go over before you, for it is God who goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And then God calls Moses and Joshua, and he says this, They're going to forsake me. They're going to break my covenant. They're going to turn to other gods. They're going to despise me. They will break my covenant again. And I know that right now in this day when they look like cute, loving children, this is already in their heart. And here we have the problem. And it is the problem that is at the root of every heart to have ever beat since Adam and Eve. And that is that the promise we need, the hope for us in a broken world is just what Moses said, that God will be with us. But the problem is, is our sin drives us away. The problem is, is that our hearts distance us from the very God we need to save us. So much so that God said he would hide his face from his people. And Moses assumes a question that people will ask. Is this because God is unfaithful? If only God were with us, none of this would happen. But Moses wants, it to make, wants to make it clear to them that it's not because of God's unfaithfulness to you. It's because of your unfaithfulness to God. 
the drastic truth about our sin is the effect of it. Sin distances us from God. Just this week, I had a, a, a rough week with my son. Uh, we have a rule where uh, our kids don't eat good. They don't eat well. And so we want them to not die. And so we have this really firm, hard, oppressive rule that they have to eat a bite of dinner. That's pretty unfathomable that we would do that. And if they refuse to take a bite of dinner, then it goes on their plate for the next meal. And so this last week, dinner came, and my wife toiled all day with this absolutely disgusting poisoned beef stew. And we gave it to my son, and he didn't like it. Well, that's not true. He would have had to have tried it to have made that decision. Uh, He wouldn't try it. And so I say, Owen, there's no more food tonight, and this will be in your breakfast bowl tomorrow morning. And sure enough, tomorrow morning comes, and he wouldn't eat it. And so for his lunch at school, I packed him beef stew. And it went beautifully. He said, Father, I realize that I have chosen what is foolish in the world. I will eat this. I realize you love me. You're after my good. That's not at all true. (laughs) He loathed me. Every time I tried to offer grace, I tried to be like, just this bite, do this, and then, you know, we can, we'll, we'll figure out something. If you eat this, we, we will get you food. But every time I tried to give him grace, he hardened, and more than that, he became angry at me. He was distancing himself from me. And on the end, I asked him, this is my dramatic son. Uh, he's not in here today, but I love my son, and my son is growing in faith just how we all are. I, it was his 100th day of school, and they were having a big party and, on Friday. And this is the day I sent him with his poisoned lunch to school. And I said, Owen, oh, you've been in school for 100 days. I said, what's your favorite day? And he said, not today. And so I go and I drop my son who hasn't eaten in like 12 hours off at school and he is hating me and he's accusing me of not loving him, not caring for him, not offering him anything. And that was probably the weightiest, it seems silly, but here I'm dropping off a starving son (laughs) in a classroom I'm not at and I should just be completely livid, but on the inside I'm absolutely broken. Because I want my son to live. I want him to realize man does not live by Frito alone. (laughs) And as much as it seems loving for me to just cave and give him something, that this space of pain is actually the best way forward. And that's what our sin does to God. Our sin relationally distances ourselves because all sin in our heart or in our hands is a conscious action of, I don't believe you love me. And we reap the burdens of that inside of salvation and outside of salvation. One ends in judgment and one ends with a sort of spiritual confusion and a feeling of distance from the God who's promised to save us. 
But here we begin to see how sin is handled and how Moses probably felt. Moses has spent 40 years giving everything for these people. And God says, they're going to throw it all away. Everything you did, the very people whom you are going to die because of, nothing. And then there's Joshua, who's right there the whole time. He hears the terrible reality of these people. He hears the judgment that's going to come. And God says, here's your people. Have fun. Some commissioning this is, right? But look at what God says to Joshua in verse 30, or 23. And the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous. For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land I swore to give them. I will be with you. God says to Joshua, in the midst of a faithless people, you will bring them into the land. Despite their sin, you're going to do it. Despite your sin, they're going to occupy the land. Why? Two reasons. God promised it to them. As I swore it to them, Joshua, I'm going to do it. And secondarily, He says to Joshua, I will be with you. They will run. They will rebel. They will despise. But I will be with you in the midst of all of that. Even though God's people were going to distance themselves from God, God was going to redeem them through a commitment to his promise and the presence in the heart of Israel's leader. And this is our final point today. Is that God with us means that even when we're not with him, Jesus makes a way back. You see, the hope for Israel in the midst of their sin was that God would be with their leader. And if God was with Joshua, the hope of the promise still stood. And Joshua's commitment in the face of Israel's sin is meant to point us to the person and work of Jesus. Because in Israel's history, we see God's appointed leaders doing wonderful things, but it's never enough. They always need a new leader, a stronger leader, a better leader. And this is where it's so important to see how Matthew introduces Jesus through the mouth of an angel in verse 22, or or 21 starting, speaking about Mary. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus come? There it is, to save them from their sins. And how was he able to do it? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, it's only in Jesus Christ where God has promised to be with you, solving the problem of distance in a permanent and abiding way. He solves our soul problem of separation from God. And this has two wonderful points of application for us in closing. The first is that it's only Jesus who stands between Moses' promise and God's judgment. Moses promises God's nearness. God says, but you're going to rebel. I'm sure that there are people in here who feel like their sin 
has distanced themselves from God in one of two ways. One being, I can never get back. And the other being, I've got to do a lot to get back. And both of those are crushing and burdensome. But if you look at what Jesus came to do, he came to save you from your sins because he is God with us. Jesus brings you all the way back. Why? Because Jesus was always near to God even when we ran away. And Jesus, as God's son, who always obeyed, took our disobedience, took our relational separation, took our judgment on the cross so that you as an enemy, so that you as one who rebelled, so that you who cried out to your heavenly father and said, not today, could be brought back to God. If Jesus is in your life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can feel spiritual separation. Why? Because sin separates us. But what's the wonderful truth of no condemnation through those who are in Christ Jesus? Turn. He's there. He's waiting. This is why Jesus came. So that you could come back and be welcomed into the arms of grace by realizing that you have wronged and going back through the route of Jesus Christ. There is a way back from your faithlessness. There is a way back from your sin, no matter how far off you think it's brought you, because Jesus has made a way back for you. And that's what Jesus has come for. Not just to save us as some disconnected entity, but to save us relationally by bringing us back to God so that the promise of God's nearness and the certainty of his promise in the face of unchanging circumstances can be held fast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how you move from the insanity of pace to the insanity of grace. It's turning and trusting in the work of Jesus that that was sufficient. No matter how much the world or your heart tries to tell you it was insufficient. But there's a secondary point here. That's a point when it comes to discipleship. And that's that just as Joshua was promised God's nearness in leading the people into the promised land, The church has been promised God's nearness when it comes to making disciples in this world. This is what we saw in the Great Commission, right? Jesus was not only God with us and then just left us forever. Jesus ascended into heaven and he gave us the Holy Spirit as God with us. Why? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, one part, it reminds us of what God has done. And the other part is it empowers us for what God wants to do. Point in case, making disciples is hard. It's difficult. It's messy. You and those around you will find themselves more often than not in the rebellious people than in the faithful people. You will be Israel despising, running, and making a mess of things. But God has promised that for those who God is with them, there's always a way forward to help those who have fallen away. There's always something tangible to bring them back. And in moments when we or our friends are falling away, I want you to hear this. You have everything you need to make a difference of calling sinners back to grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are fully equipped. Joshua had nothing but God with him. And in the gospel, you have that too. And it's actually in the context of discipleship and fighting sin and enduring in faith that the author of Hebrews quotes part of Deuteronomy that we read today. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to you? We need this encouragement to be a healthy church. That's part of our first goal in the 50-50 legacy is to be a healthy church. And the truth is that God's writing to Joshua. He's writing to this appointed leader. And it's true that in the context of the church, me and the other seven elders have a spiritual responsibility. Hebrews talks about later on in this chapter 13 to lovingly correct and call back those who are straying. But the truth is, all of us share this burden. We have nothing more to offer the people in your community group who are hurting than you do in the gospel. This is really well illustrated. I may have used this illustration before, but Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was held up from a preaching event and was late. And so in his stead, his grandpa got up and started to preach. And uh, when Charles came in the back of the church, the grandfather said, at last, my grandson is here. He can preach the gospel better than me, but he cannot preach a better gospel. See, there are people in this room who might be more articulate, might be more aware, might be more helpful when it comes to helping people understand the implications of the gospel. But God has predicted that just as Israel, the church is going to wrestle with sin. And if you have the gospel, you really have what it takes to move towards that sin in the lives of your brothers and sisters and to help them come back to God's grace. The church is capable of doing this. And elders help, and community group leaders help, and deacons help. But the whole church is called to help in this because we expect sin. Why? Because God doesn't save perfect people. God saves broken people. And because of that, we need to learn how the gospel helps us care for those who are broken in sin. Life as God's church is always going to be messy. In this time of transition of Jesus going up but not yet coming back, we need to realize that God is with us here. God is calling us to do work, wonderful, mighty, empowered by God himself, even when life is hard. So when it comes to evangelism and discipleship and the changing circumstances of life, let us be strong and courageous. Let us not stand in dread of the challenges that we face in our city and in our church, for it is Christ who has gone before us, and he will never leave us and never forsake us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you, um, just as Moses prayed, you cause us not only to hear, but to fear and respond in faith and obedience. We thank you, Jesus, for the gospel which has gone before us the gospel which anyone can get in on by responding to the person and work of Jesus Christ, work that already shows that God has done the work in reviving our dead hearts. And Lord, because of that, equip us for what life is like as the church. Equip us to invite people into the gospel. Equip us to help people with the gospel. Equip us to repent and use the gospel so that we might be the church you've called us to be that others might see the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.